Thank you, Dave. Uh, when Ivan asked me to share this morning, he said it can either uh, be about something the Lord's been doing in our lives, a concept we've been thinking about, or he mentioned Palm Sunday. Um, it could be related to that. Well, I've been thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity recently since the men's meeting uh, when Marvin mentioned that um, his Muslim friend Tyrone, who he's been interacting with, has a lot of problems understanding the Trinity and he uh, thinks it doesn't make sense. And so Marvin has been trying to explain that to him and um, wanted suggestions for that. So we were talking about that at the end of the uh, men's meeting, last men's meeting at the beginning of this month. So that's the uh, concept I've been thinking about recently and I wanted to share about that. I hope it, it can be helpful in understanding the doctrine of the Trinity as presented in the Bible if anybody is having trouble with that. Um, you can turn to uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4, which is where I'll be turning to first. Um, while you're doing that, I just want to give a brief um, description of what I'm trying to uh, accomplish this morning. Um, I'll do that with an analogy by the uh, Christian philosopher and theologian J.P. Moreland, um, bringing out the difference between knowledge and belief in something. So imagine a, um, a homeless man who lives on down in Virginia Beach, he lives there on the beach, he just drinks all day, he never went to school, um, and he's um, developed this philosophy of life that whatever is written on the second stall in the men's room on the beach, he believes that, and that's uh, his life philosophy. So he goes into the men's room in the second stall, and written on the wall, it says, George Washington was the first president of the United States. And this man says, well, I don't know who George Washington was. I don't know what a president is, but you know, if the stall says it, I believe it, and that's that. And now imagine, contrast that with a, um, a, a um, professor at a university, a historian who spe specializes in presidents of that time, the Revolutionary War period, and he studied documents. He's read letters, um, seen pictures, and he's come to the conclusion George Washington was the first president of the United States. Now what do these uh, two men have in common? Um, two things, they both believe, they have a true belief that George Washington was the first president of the United States. They both believe the same thing and the belief is true. One simply has the belief, the other has the knowledge behind the belief and that gives him authority to talk about it, to teach about it, and it gives him a higher level of confidence in that belief. So what I'm going to do is read a few scriptures that um, illustrate the belief in the doctrine of the Trinity. And after that, my main focus wants to be on the knowledge behind that belief. And knowing this gives me a further confidence in it and brings a um, higher level of clarity for me um, to that. And so, um, to begin, although the word Trinity is not found in the scriptures, that's essentially irrelevant. And the point is that the doctrine of the Trinity is a summary of the biblical information that indicates two things. Uh, there is one God, and there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. So let's uh, very briefly look at the scriptural information that supports these two truths. First, that there is one God. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4, 
we see that this is taught in the Old Testament. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And we see later in the New Testament, in Mark 12, 29, that this is affirmed by Jesus when he is asked, What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Also in Romans 3, 29 and 30, Paul affirms this view of monotheism, one God, when he says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Here Paul did not think, we can see he does not think of the Jewish God as um, a God among many, but he says that the God of Israel is, in fact, also the God of Gentiles, because there is only one God, and Therefore, Jew and Gentile alike can be united in worship of the one true God. The next point that is that the scriptures teach that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. So let's look at each of um, these three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. First, in Matthew eleven twenty-seven, Jesus says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So we see in this passage that the Father and the Son are two distinct persons. Now in John 14, 16, and 17, we see the Father's distinction from the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Here we have all three persons of the Godhead. The Son is praying to the Father to send another counselor, which is the Holy Spirit. So, the, the scriptures give us the belief in the Trinity. They teach that God the Father is distinct from the Son and from the Spirit, and that all three are the God, the one God of the New Old Testament. So this presents a uh, seemingly a logical problem. How can three persons, how can there be three persons that are all divine and yet not three separate beings? How can you have three persons who are each divine and not have three gods? And this is the knowledge problem that I would call it that many people cannot overcome when considering the Trinity when considering belief in the Trinity. And this is what I want to um, try to address, and I'll start by um, an analogy. Well, um, yeah, nothing in our world, I think, can be a direct analogy to the Trinity. A lot of them can be helpful in like a springboard in understanding the, the concept of the Trinity. So consider this analogy. It's from the uh, myth of Hercules from the Greco-Roman myth. One of the trials that Hercules had to go through was to subdue the three-headed dog Kerberos, who guarded the gates of Hades. Now we can suppose that Kerberos, having three heads, must have had three brains and therefore three distinct states of consciousness. Each one, each head, each state of consciousness would experience what it's like to be a dog. Therefore, Kerberos, although he is a single dog, a single being, doesn't have a single consciousness. Rather, he has three consciousnesses. We could even give, we could even give a name to each of these consciousnesses, these three, um, these three heads, distinct canine animals. 
we can call them uh, Buddy, Spot, and Rocky. So if Hercules were attempting to enter Hades and Spot um, growled at him and bit him on the leg, Hercules um, could go back and say, Kerberos uh, growled at me. Kerberos bit me on the leg. So uh, now to take this analogy one step further, imagine if Hercules kills Kerberos and his body dies and these three minds of Kerberos are immortal and they go into the afterlife. In what way would they still be one being? So you see the problem here. If what unites these three minds is the body of Kerberos and the body dies, what unites them in the afterlife? <clears throat> How are they different from three separate beings? In the case of the Trinity, since the three divine persons are at least prior to the incarnation, unembodied, they don't have a physical body to unite them, we can ask, why do they have one divine being rather than three individual divine beings? This is a difficult question, and in attempting to answer, I wanted to very clearly clarify that uh, this material is in no way original with me, and while it may be slightly technical, I believe it's a model in which we can understand the Trinity in a logically coherent way while remaining true to the biblical information. So let's, um, I want to begin by considering the nature of what is a soul. A soul is an immaterial substance equipped with a set of rational faculties of intellect and free will. Everybody with me so far? So while we typically think of a soul as one human person, that's because all the souls that we're familiar with are human persons. The reason that a human soul is one person is because it's equipped with one set of rational faculties of intellect and free will. When you think about it, God is very much like an unembodied soul, one of divine nature. He's a divine soul. So suppose that God is a divine soul which is equipped with three sets of rational faculties, three intellects, and three free wills. There is simply no reason why, because every human soul that we're familiar with has only one set of rational faculties, why can't a divine soul have three sets of intellects and free will? In that case, God, being one divine soul, would not be one person, he'd be three persons. He'd be one soul, one divine being, one divine being which is tri-personal in nature. Just as our human soul supports one person because they are equipped with one set of rational faculties sufficient for personhood, we can think of God as a divine soul which is equipped with three sets of rational faculties, each sufficient for personhood. And this sort of model gives me a clear understanding of the Orthodox Christian doctrine of the Trinity. God is one divine being with three persons. And while this might be more appropriate for a, a Sunday school environment where there can be discussion and questions afterward, if anyone is 
uh, has further interest in this, I'd yeah, appreciate um, further discussion afterwards if you have uh, interest in that. Thank you. Thank you, Austin. I agree that the complexity of God is beyond our understanding, although it's, it's interesting to kind of think through it, <laughs> even though we can't, can't fully understand it and, um, and find evidence in Scripture as well. My focus this morning is on Jesus as both servant and king. And that is something else that's hard to understand. I don't think I can fully understand how he can be both, but he is. Part of his nature is king and part of his nature is servant. Um, not in opposition to each other, but, but one and the same. So he fulfills both roles, both king and both servant. Um, like Dave, this being Palm Sunday, my starting point for exploring this topic is Matthew chapter 21. Um, since we've already heard it read, that just kind of gets us into it a little bit. So we have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I guess the, the part I want to draw your attention to um, would be in, in verse 5. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey. And that's very interesting. Jesus entered Jerusalem with the multitudes crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. If you turn over to Luke chapter 19, a different record of the same events. Looking at verses 37 and 38, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So the account in Matthew, behold, your king is coming to you. And the account in Luke, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And you see that, that word king in both of those accounts. The Pharisees were not happy with this. So some of the Pharisees were not happy with this and called on Jesus to rebuke his disciples. But Jesus responded, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So that tells us that the people, the crowds, the multitudes were correct in calling him king as he's entering Jerusalem. They laid their clothes down on the road for him. They cut palm branches and laid them on the road. And they welcomed him with glory and honor and praise. My outline is very simple for my thoughts this morning. Jesus as king, Jesus as servant, Jesus the eternal king, and then Jesus the eternal servant. When he rode into Jerusalem as a king in fulfillment of the prophecy, oh, he was in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. Um, just exploring this for a moment, it would have been typical for a king 
to be riding a horse. In the book of Esther, Haman sought to honor himself. And so the request that he made of the king, he said, And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. So Haman, seeking honor for himself, wanted to be riding on a horse because he knew what that represented. The horse was a symbol of military strength. When God drowned Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, they are pursuing Moses and the nation of Israel with horses and chariots, a great military force. King Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. His father, King David, the greatest king of Israel, rode on a mule. Pete and I were talking this morning how King Solomon did as well, although he had a lot of horses. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, and so, as Dave already mentioned, this shows his humility. And perhaps also that his kingdom was not to be one of military strength. Back to Matthew again. If you look at what happened before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, going back to chapter 20, verses 20 through 21, you see that on the way to Jerusalem, the mother of James and John, together with James and John, approached Jesus. And she kneeled down to ask something of him. And Jesus said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on, your, on the left in your kingdom. So they had some understanding of the kingdom of God. They had some understanding of the glory and honor due to Jesus. And she was asking for this, you know, for this thing for her sons. Jesus answered and said and explained to them, you don't know what you're saying. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup and able to be baptized with the same baptism as me? And they responded to him saying, we are able. And the ten were greatly displeased with this. I'm sorry, I skipped something. He said, they said, we are able. And Jesus said, this will happen, this will be. However... To sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. So that was his answer to them. And then the other ten were displeased with the two brothers. But then Jesus further explained, giving insight into the nature of his kingdom. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So the nature of the kingdom of God 
being servanthood. It was a few days after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem when Jesus was celebrating Passover with his disciples when he stooped down and began washing their feet, taking the place of a slave or a bondservant, demonstrating what he had taught them during that time before arriving in Jerusalem. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he received the praise and honor of the multitudes, but later the crowds would turn on him, and then he would freely give himself into their hands to be crucified. However, he rose from the grave and later ascended to take his rightful place, sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God, and that is the risen Lord and Savior that that we serve. During the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John saw a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. Thinking ahead to his second coming, he's going to return in all his glory with full power and full might. And this is the eternal king. So looking in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And just notice there that in this case he is riding a horse. He's riding a white horse. Skipping down to 16. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that's Jesus, the eternal king. Now, the last point, Jesus, the eternal servant, um, I needed a little bit of help (laughs) with this point. Um, so I turned to this book, Seeing Christ in the Old Testament, Irvin Hershberger, and um, I found an answer. So um, I think it's easy for us to see Jesus as a servant during his time on earth. I found it personally more difficult to wrap my mind around him being an eternal servant. I wasn't really sure what that meant, um, or even if I was correct in saying that. So I guess I started looking for evidence So when Jesus came to earth, he came in the form of a bondservant. And that's very clearly stated in Philippians, that his form is that of a bondservant. Although we know that he retained, you know, the nature of of divinity. Um, I guess the question that I had was what happened after he died and was resurrected and ascended into heaven? But... Um, Irvin Hershberger here makes the point that though he died, he retained the nature of bondservant through the resurrection and the ascension. And I'm just going to read from, from a couple pages in his book here because he can say it better than I can. When mortal bondservants committed themselves to serve their master forever, there was, after all, a time limit set by the brevity of life. Not so with Jesus. His resurrection provides an eternal dimension to his commitment That was not true of any other Hebrew servant. No mortal servant ever loved his master or his wife and children like Jesus loved those whom his father gave him. Nor has any mortal servant ever served his master as faithfully as Jesus serves the father who sent him. All others are only a shadow of which Jesus is the substance. Christ is the true Hebrew servant, committed to serve the father forever. Ever since his ascension to glory, His intercessory ministry has never ceased. Even when he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords, yea, in eternity future, 
he will be serving his father forever. And that's just an amazing thing, that, that Jesus is both the eternal king and the eternal servant, forever and ever serving the will of his father. But also, we can know God, and we can know Jesus. And he's a servant in terms of he is ready and willing and able to meet us at any need should we cry out for his help. So, Jesus King, worthy of all glory and praise and honor. Jesus the servant, ready to meet us when we need him. Turn it over to Pete. Thank you, John and Austin. I was thinking of someone else in the Bible who in some way reminded me of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. And this is King Solomon, and uh, John already referred to him riding on a mule, which I was sort of surprised to find that. But anyhow, if uh, we look at uh, 1 Kings, and in the first verse it it says David was old and advanced in years. And uh, someone said that he was probably only in his 70s, and it wasn't so much his age as his mileage. Said that he had been used to running full throttle basically all his life. And uh, anyhow... I want to read part of this. Down in verse 5, it says, Here is Adonijah, the son of Haggath, exalted himself, saying, I will be king, because it looked like his, his father is, is about to the end. And look at what he did. He prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, and 50 men to run ahead of him. And someone referred to this as being a motorcade. You know, instead of just coming out one day and saying he's going to be king, he had a big celebration. And then uh, verse 6 says something interesting. It says, his father had not rebuked him at all any time. And, and this is interesting. Oh, dude, David was such a, a great king. Uh, you know, he had a number of wives, and I suppose he probably turned the, the uh, education or training of his, his sons over to their mothers. Anyhow... His father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? And then it also says he was a very good-looking man. And his mother bore him after Absalom. But anyhow, here you have a recipe for a spoiled kid, I think, because if he was never corrected and he was handsome, I mean, those are two things that will get a person places where, you know, a homely guy won't get, put, put it that way. Okay, then uh, down in verse 11, uh, Nathan finds out what is happening. Anyhow, uh, Adonijah invited a bunch of his friends and those who he thought were on his side to this this party or this celebration. And he didn't invite Nathan and and a number of other people as well. So anyhow, Nathan found out what's what's happening, so he went to... uh, to Bathsheba and told her to go, go talk to, to David. And uh, so I want to read what, what Bathsheba said to David, starting in verse 15 of, of 1 Kings chapter 1, because she repeats the whole story to him. And there's a lot, lot here that's sort of repetitive if we start earlier. Okay, so Bathsheba went into the, the chamber of the king. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was serving the king. And Bathsheba bowed and did homage to the king. Then the king said, What is your wish? 
And she said to him, My lord, you swore by the Lord your God to your maidservant, saying, Surely Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. So now look, Adonijah has become king, and now, my lord, the king, you do not know about it. He has sacrificed oxen and fatted cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the sons of the king, Abathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon your servant he has not invited. And as for you, my lord, O king, the eyes of old Israel are on you that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will happen when my lord the king rests with his father that I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders. And you know what kings did to offenders. They had them put to death before they could really carry out much of their, their bad wishes. And then she continues, or the story continues. And just then, while she was still talking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. So they told the king, saying, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Nathan said, My lord, O king, have you said, Adonijah shall reign after me? And he shall sit on my throne, for he has gone down today and has sacrificed oxen and fatted cattle and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the kings. Sons and the commanders of the army, Abathar the priest, and look, they are eating and drinking before him. And they say, Long live King Adonijah, but he has not invited me, your servant, nor Zadok the priest, nor Benijah the son of Jehoiada, nor the servant. Your servant Solomon, has this thing been done by my lord the king, and have you not been told that your servant who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? King David answered and said, Call Bathsheba to me. So apparently she had gone out while uh, this conversation was going on. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king, and the king took an oath and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by, by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Surely a Sol Solomon, shall, Solomon your son shall be the king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, and I will certainly do this today. Then Bathsheba bowed her face to the earth and paid homage to the king and said, Let, let the Lord King David live forever. Then King David called, or King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And so they came before the king, and the king also said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule. And that's the part that I really wanted of this story. And it's, it's interesting that David was, was riding a mule, and uh, as John pointed out, he had all these thousands of horses later, but this was when he was coming to the throne, so I guess that happened later. But riding the king's mule, that was like his place in the motorcade, you know. So people took a glance and they probably recognized that as, as King David's mule. And so take him down to Gibbon. There let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel and blew the horn and say, Long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him and you shall come and sit on my throne, and he shall be king in my place. For I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Benijah the son of Jehoiada answered the king and said, Amen. May the Lord God of my father, the king, say so too. As the Lord has been with my lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord King David. 
So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benijah the son of Jehoiada, the Shethonites, and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and took him to Gibeon. And Zadok the priest took horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon, and they blew the horn, and the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, and the people played with the flutes and rejoiced with great joy, so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. So that gives you some idea of what it must have sounded like, even though I don't think they had any amplifiers in those days. So anyhow, I found this interesting now. You know, the, uh, the, the small part here that, that's similar to Jesus riding into Jerusalem because it really was saying the king is coming. Uh, one other thing that's not quite related to that, I guess. I was just going to say, if I had one of the other topics, that I think Christianity is one of the most hated and best-loved organizations, you can call that, of all time, because many of Christ's followers are, are very willing to give their life for him and I just heard yesterday that they figure every five minutes, somewhere in the world, a Christian is being killed because of their faith in God. So maybe we'd be faithful to him. <laughs>